All right, so let's begin reading there in Acts chapter 11, verse 1, and see what the Lord has for us today. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of the Lord, excuse me, the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, you went in to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheet, let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed you must not call common. Now this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. At that very moment, there three men stood before the house where I was, where I was having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us um, how he had seen an angel standing in his house, who said to him, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, as upon us at the beginning." Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If, therefore, God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Now, those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all, that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so it was that for a whole year, they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named named Agabus stood up, showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. 
Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Lord, we thank you for the reading of your word this morning. We thank you for the good things you have for us in this passage of scripture. And so we turn our hearts now to what you have for us. And we open ourselves up, Lord, to your grace, your mercy, your goodness, to your word, to truth, to the sword of the spirit. And we ask you to minister in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, of course, we had looked at chapter 10, that amazing passage where we look at uh, what happened with Peter and how the Lord spoke to him through that vision of the sheet with all of the animals, the unclean animals mixed up with the good animals coming down from heaven and the Lord or the Spirit speaking to Peter saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And as we looked at all of that last week, we looked at the fact that the Lord was using a common thing, the issue of food and unclean and, and clean animals to speak to Peter so that he might understand what was about to happen next because God had this sort of timeline all orchestrated and lined out for Peter. And while God was speaking to Peter, God was speaking to Cornelius up the coast 30 or so miles and preparing this Gentile household to receive the word of God. And so this whole thing happened. It was an amazing thing. The, The spirit of God fell upon these people and The gospel officially went to the Gentiles. These were probably not the first Gentiles who got saved, but this was the first time that marked the Gentiles themselves sort of being reached out to as a a group of people. And so now word has been received back to the, the Jewish part of the church, the original church, and they've become upset about things. So we pick up our story in verse one of chapter 11. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So that's a good thing. The kingdom of God is expanding. The word of God is is moving. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him saying, you went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, why was this such a big deal to them? Well, they already had their prejudices against Gentiles and against other people groups of people who were not Jews, who had not believed in the Jewish God. They hadn't believed in the Jewish ways. But also there's this issue of fellowship. And I think it's something that we don't understand today in our culture. In in the Jewish mindset, for someone to go into someone's house and to share a meal with them, there was sort of a mystical aspect to it. And in that century, in those days, they didn't have the Emily Post guidelines for etiquette. You know, if, if, if you invite someone to your home today, we, we set it our places, you have a place setting and a fork and a knife and a spoon, and they go in a certain way, and your glass goes here, and your coffee cup goes here, and plates are stacked, you know, course one, course two, and all of that. The food's in the middle of the table, and uh, either sometimes the host or hostess may serve you, or you may reach out and get it yourself, or they may have rules in their house, like start with what's in front of you and pass everything to the left. And if there's a big plate of something that can't be passed easily, then someone will serve you. And so we have all these things that go on, but in their culture, it was like a free-for-all. 
The food was just on the table and you would be given flatbread and different kinds of things. Probably the most analogous thing to our culture would be tortilla chips and salsa. So they would have these sauces and they would have this flatbread and you would just rip off a piece of flatbread and you know your feet got washed when you came in the door but not your hands. So you're starting to get the picture. And so you rip off a piece of bread, you dip it in the sauce in the middle, you take a bite and there were no rules against double dipping so you would just dip it right back in. A complete COVID nightmare, right? And you dip the bread back in and you keep eating. And, and then as you did that, you're sharing your germs, right? And they understood this. And your, your saliva, everything's being shared. I know you're getting grossed out, but that's the way it was. And so to share a meal together was to have fellowship. It was communion because you were truly sharing in all things, So for a Jew to think about someone eating with a Gentile and all of that imagery coming into their mind and thinking, I've just ingested the germs of a Gentile in my body. This is like anathema to them. This was a big deal. So when Peter came to the Jewish church in Jerusalem, it says those of the circumcision contended with him now. We may look at this from the point of view of legalism, and that's probably not far from the truth, but I think we need to extend them a little grace because this is all new to them. This is the first time these things are happening, so I think they're coming at least in part out of concern for their brother, Peter, and saying, hey man, what's up? What are you doing going in and eating with these people? Are you crazy? You're defiling yourself. And they were thinking about the ceremonial cleansing and the uncleanness that would be brought to them and then the the procedure and the process they would have to go through to cleanse themselves again and so they they contended with him and at first as they they confront Peter here it says at first they were uh, at least one commentator put it this way at first they were more concerned with what Peter did than with what God was doing you see God was moving and so Peter's now got to tell the story He's got to retell everything. He's on trial a little bit here. So he has to stand and sort of say, look, okay, time out. This is what happened. And so he begins in verse four. And he says, uh, as as it it says there, he explained it to them in order from the beginning. He, he, He wanted them to understand this is what God did. I was in the city of Joppa, verse five, praying. And in a trance, I saw a vision an object ascending like a great sheet let down from heaven by four corners and it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, this is important. This is important for the story. I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, not so, Lord. And it's important because he's acknowledging to them, he's telling them it was the Lord who was speaking to him. Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. This is important. Because Peter, maybe there were, maybe they at this point in the story are where Peter was when he first saw the vision, which is, as it said, as the vision concluded in, in chapter 10, he was sitting there wondering, what, what do these things mean? What is this all about? And, you know, it happened three times. Uh, and it says it was drawn up again into heaven. In verse 11, at that very moment, 
three men stood before the house where, where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me, so this is the third time now, or the fourth time he's saying that God spoke to him. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. So at this point, they're at least a little bit intrigued. As Peter is saying, no, you don't understand. The Lord spoke to me. The Spirit spoke to me. And he says in verse 12, Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren, remember I said last week, there were some guys who went with them and that they would serve a purpose later. He's pointing to them, no doubt, at this point in the story. These six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. So I've got some witnesses with me. I drugged these other six brothers, so there were seven of us who were defiled. And so he is telling them this story so that they understand that God was doing this. And Peter needs to make a point here in verse 13. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house who said to him, send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. So Peter's now set the stage for them. God spoke to me and he spoke to me in very specific ways. And then these men came. And they told me to go to this house, Cornelius's house, 30 miles up the coast, up north. And then he was telling me how an angel spoke to him. So God was working in both homes. He was working in both hearts. He was working on both ends of the situation. And now we sort of have the situation here as the man, this Gentile man, this devout man, this centurion, is saying how he had a visitation from an angel, there's a point here to be made. If it was permitted for God to send an angel into a Gentile's house, wouldn't it also be permitted for God to send a Jewish man into a Gentile house? That's the point not to be lost on them. You see, God has already been doing something. God himself visited a Gentile. Oh my gosh. God visited the Gentiles. Who was I? to resist God. And as I began to speak, he began to speak the words that were spoken, that uh, the Spirit had put upon his heart. The Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Now, if we go back and read in the story in Acts chapter 10, what happened there is the Lord had spoken to Peter a number of times. He had spoken to Cornelius. Cornelius had told his men. His men had gone to Simon the Tanner's house to find Peter. Peter went back. Now all this time is passing, and they're all wondering. They're all thinking. They're all praying, and they come. And as they get there, the Lord has prepared Peter's heart. The Lord has prepared the hearts of those people in Cornelius' house. And as he began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. You can't deny that. Then I remembered, he says, the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, when Jesus spoke those words to them, he was speaking to his Jewish brethren. But now Peter is saying, now I'm understanding that the word of God applied not only to us Jews, but also to the Gentiles. Because when I began to speak, The Spirit of God interrupted me, as it were, 
And he fell upon them and they received the Spirit of God. And then I remembered what Jesus said, that he would do the baptizing. So that must mean that Jesus loves these people and that he fell upon these people and that he wanted to save these people. Verse 17, if therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us, remember last week we talked about this becoming the Gentile Pentecost. When we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? I mean, hey, God was moving. God was speaking, and as the Spirit fell upon them, and then we ended up baptizing all these people, I mean, why would we stand against the work of God? It was clear that the Holy Spirit was moving. It was clear that God was working. And in verse 18, when they heard these things, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Here's an amazing thing. Don't miss what happened in verse 18. Remember at the beginning of this story that these zealous brothers were contending with Peter saying, hey man, you went in to eat with Gentiles and that's not right and we can't have it and you're messing with us and you're, you know, this whole thing is a bad deal. It's a bad scene for us. What are you doing, Peter? And Peter tells the story. And now it says here, they became silent. Apparently they received what had been said. And it says, and they glorified God saying, then God has also granted repentance to the Gentiles. Here's what happened in their hearts. Listen, they were corrected by the Holy Spirit. And they received that correction. How many of you like correction? How many of you like to be told you're wrong? I don't. I'm just doing this for illustration purposes. In their hearts, they became humble. And they received the word of the Lord. How important is this for us? We may have a view, an opinion, a thought. But as we read God's word, as we listen to praise and worship music, as we go to church, as we, you know, you know, listen to things on our phones, you know, recorded messages. I don't know what you listen to. I listen to stuff all the time. If God is speaking something, and you know, you know when it's speaking to you. You know when it's speaking to your heart. You know when God is putting his finger on an issue in your life. You, we have to learn in that moment not to harden our heart and just go on with business as usual. We need to stop and respond then to what God is saying, just as these people did. Now, they could have responded. They could have had hard hearts. They could have stood up and said, oh, that's just baloney. That was just you. You were hungry. You were on some, you know, your, your blood sugar was low and you needed food. And that wasn't God. That was just you. I don't know what was wrong. They, they could have thrown their arms up and objected and said that wasn't of God. But in that moment, they received it. Why? Because the Holy Spirit was moving. The Holy Spirit was working, not just in what he did, in Peter's life and in Cornelius' life and in the house of this Gentile place that now became the center of a church there in the region of Caesarea. But here in this place in Jerusalem, they are being corrected by the Spirit and God is saying to them, listen, I've always wanted to go to the Gentiles. You're the ones who are in the wrong. You're the ones who need to adjust. 
You're the ones who need to course correct here because I'm doing something. And what's happening here, if we read between the lines a bit, it's saying that God is on the move, that God has a plan, and that his purposes and his plans will be accomplished no matter what happens and no matter who goes or who doesn't go. And I believe if Peter didn't respond to this, God would have raised up someone else to take to these people to to minister to them because he wanted to save them. But as we saw last week and we are reminded of today in the first half of this story in Acts chapter 11, God often works behind the scenes. He works on both ends, accomplishing his will, preparing a heart over here, preparing a mind over there, getting things ready. And this ought to encourage us because all of us have someone or people that we're praying for, aren't we? People whom we love who don't know Christ and we wonder, since they won't receive from us, oftentimes it's family members and family uh, so many times are the hardest ones to reach. They don't want to hear from us what's going on in our lives and about our Jesus and about our walk and what God's done for us. And so we pray, God, would you bring someone else into their lives? You see, God is able to do these things, isn't he? We've already been seeing this throughout the book of Acts, how Peter and John about the hour of prayer going up to pray. Acts chapter 3 and 4. Or how about uh, sending Peter down to the desert road to speak to the Ethiopian eunuch? You see, God has his methods, God has his ways, and God has his people. And he can take them and put them wherever he wants, just like pieces on a chessboard. And so we should never lose hope, we should never give up, we should never lose heart in praying for people because just as God divinely and in a a wonderful and a miraculous way orchestrated this event that brought salvation to the Gentiles and began now a move of the Spirit into the, the Gentile regions, so God wants to move today in our lives. So now we sort of turn channels a bit with verse 19 and we shift to the church in Antioch. Now, those who were scattered, verse 19, after the persecution that arose over Stephen. So here we are all these years later now dealing with Stephen. This is some, oh, eight or ten years after Stephen. And we're, we're now in, in Acts 11, probably about uh, between 10 and 12 years after the resurrection. Those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. So they were doing what they thought was right, which is the the gospel is for the Jews. And so they were preaching only to the Jews. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists preaching the Lord Jesus. So now they are beginning to share the gospel or to evangelize with Gentile people. And the hand of the Lord, verse 21 tells us, was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. So these are not apostles. These are not evangelists. These are not deacons. These are just people, regular folk like you and me, people who love God and who understand. You know, that day, when I got saved, when Jesus spoke to me, when I gave my heart to him, however you want to think of it. But think back to that point in time when you first believed. And remember 
that first love. Remember the joy you, you felt in your heart over being forgiven, over understanding everything about Jesus and how, how much he loves you, how much he wants you to be a part of, of him and of what he's doing. He wants to be able to present you and to present me and anyone who will believe before the throne of grace. He wants to be able to bring us to God. And so these people, these are regular disciples, and they have in their mind and their heart what God did for them, and they're just going out sharing the gospel. And what caused them to go out was the persecution over what happened to Stephen. And so now they've been driven out into other regions. And it says, the hand of the Lord was with them, excuse me, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Now, Antioch, just to give you a little bit of a background of the city of Antioch, was about 300 miles north of Jerusalem and about 20 miles inland from the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, Many considered Syrian Antioch the third greatest city in the Roman Empire. There were uh, probably 20 or 30 different cities named Antioch. It was a very common name. But the two that we hear about in the scriptures are called Antioch of Syria, And then later on, Antioch of Pisidia on further up into the region of Turkey. So uh, this Antioch, Syrian Antioch, was the third greatest city in the time of the Roman Empire behind Rome and Alexandria. Antioch was known for its business and commerce and for its sophistication of culture, but also for its immorality. Antioch was situated on the Orontes River, about uh, 300 miles north, I just read that. And let's see, I'm just skipping through things. The the Jews made up one-seventh of the city's population and had legal sanction to follow their own laws in their own neighborhoods. Antioch was famous for its chariot racing and for its deliberate pursuit of pleasure. Some have referred to it as a Las Vegas on the Orantes. Uh, Antioch was most famous for its worship of Daphne, whose temple (coughs) stood five miles outside town in a laurel grove, Apollo's famous pursuit of Daphne there was reenacted night and day by men in the city and by the priestesses who were in fact ritual prostitutes. So there was a, get this, right? There was a grove of myrtle trees and every night at sundown all of these these priestesses, these temple prostitutes would be in the myrtle grove And then the men would come out and they would chase them through the myrtle grove. And if they could catch one, they could have their way with them. And this was a practice that happened every day. It became a part of their culture. It became something even that they taught their kids. So it was reenacted night and day. And throughout the world, the morals of Daphne, in quotes, was a euphemism for depravity. Uh, The Roman juvenile aimed one of his sharpest barbs at his own decadent Rome when he said the Orantes had flowed into the Tiber, flooding the city with wickedness, referring to how wickedness had come into the city of Rome. Amazingly, it was in this city, with all its sensuality and immorality, that the disciples were first called Christians. We'll read about that in a moment. Antioch was also the birthplace of foreign missions. We'll see that in just a moment and had the greatest preachers in the first century Barnabas and Paul, and then Peter, in the second century Ignatius and Theophilus, in the third and the fourth century Lucian, Theodore, Chrysostom, and Theodoret, 
Uh, God's light can shine in the darkest pit. God's flowers can blossom in the most putrid uh, swamp. So we have this city, Antioch, out on the coast, a, a purely Gentile city. And here we find God is doing a work. As people are traveling, they're being scattered due to persecution. They're sharing the gospel. And, and again, we've already been told that uh, the, the Spirit, uh, the Lord was with them and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. So God is doing something. God is building a church here in this area of Antioch. And we're told that they sent Barnabas, the church in Jerusalem. And Barnabas, we met him earlier in chapter 4, but just to remind you of who he is. His name means son of consolation or son of rest. And Barnabas did two things primarily in his ministry, and we're going to see that as we go through here today. Barnabas brought um, encouragement, and he brought exhortation. And you may say, what is the difference between the two? What is encouragement, and what is, or rather, what is edification, and what is exhortation? Edification, or encouragement, is the act of building up, and it's an architecture word, we're building up, we're adding to, we're encouraging. Uh, and the idea behind edification is the act of a person who promotes another person's growth. So it's the idea of as we see people and as we seek people, trying to build them up, trying to encourage them. Not just to make them feel good by saying, how oh, you, you look nice today or something like that, but building them up in their faith. You see, we're talking about in the context of spiritual things. We're talking about in the context of the Bible, the church, and what God is doing in people's lives. So edification and encouragement is about promoting another person's growth. And so we want to, when we bring edification and when we bring encouragement, we want to encourage people to grow in their faith. We're going to find out in just a moment that Barnabas does exactly that. Now, the word exhortation, it, it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting word. You may remember from previous studies when we've talked about where Jesus said, I will send you the helper. That word is paraclete in Greek, one called alongside to help. The para is alongside, and the cleat in that scenario is being called alongside to help. This word for exhortation is paraclesis, so you can see it's a derivative, and it's a calling to one's aid. Uh, it's a calling near. It's a summons. It's a beseeching. It's a refreshing. It's a persuasive discourse and a stirring address. One Greek author said an exhortation or an admonition or an encouragement for the purpose of strengthening and establishing the believer in the faith. Another way of thinking of this edification is building up and encouragement is in a, in a sort of a strong or a forceful way, although it be gentle, encouraging someone to take steps of faith. And so this is Barnabas's life. This is his gift. This is his ministry. And he's being sent to the church, not only to find out what's going on, but more so to encourage the church, to encourage, to edify, and to exhort. So verse 23, when he came, 
and had seen the grace of God, he was glad, and he encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. And I feel like we're missing something here. Let's read that again. When he came and he had seen the grace of God. Think about this. I don't know if you've ever felt that you've seen the grace of God walking into a church or in a fellowship or a gathering of believers. What does that look like? That's all we're told. We're given no information further than that. What does it mean that he saw the grace of God? Well, he certainly saw something that was undeniably the work of the Lord. He certainly saw that in the middle of this pagan city, filled with immorality, that here was a group of people who had been touched by God, whom the Spirit of God had fallen upon. The Word of God being taught there. God was moving among these people. And in this culture, in a place where people are godless and unforgiving and all about themselves and all about immorality and all about what they can get and all about pleasure, they, they, he's found a pocket of people who love God. And in some way, the grace of God was manifested <coughs> among these people to the degree that he could see it. It was palpable. When he had seen the grace of God, he was glad. He was encouraged. And he encouraged them that with purpose of heart, they should continue with the Lord. That encouragement is an exhortation. So rather than just reading this as something that Barnabas said to this first century church in Antioch, let me read this again, but I want you to hear it, church as God speaking to you. That with purpose of heart, you should continue with the Lord. I was at a pastor's conference a few years ago. And as I was sitting in that particular pastor's conference, I was discouraged, I was defeated. There were some things going on that were just not good. And I was just sitting there thinking, you know, probably one of the about... a thousand times that I've written a resignation letter to the Lord. And I was sitting in that conference just kind of going, God, if you don't give me a word, I, I don't know. I just, I'm, I'm just going to quit. And the speaker came up and his message was, don't quit. <laughs> right in that moment, don't quit. Whole message, that's, that's what it was about. Incredible message. And of course, it was a word from the Lord, Right to do exactly this, with purpose of heart, that you should continue with the Lord. I would say in some respects, verse 23, if you want to write the word exhortation out beside it, that this is a good definition for the word exhortation. Now it says there that with purpose of heart, they should continue with the Lord. So this idea of purpose purpose of heart is this idea of setting forth a thing, of placing it in view. In fact, this very word is used, uh, to, it's only translated two ways in the New Testament. One way is to set forth or, or you know, to, to have a purpose rather. And the other way is it's translated actually showbread. Now that ought to ring a bell because in the implements of the temple, as you walked in, one of the things on the table as you walked into the temple was the showbread. 
You remember as we, as we go through and we look at the, the temple and we look at the implements in it and we see everything sort of a picture of Christ and we see that showbread that's put out there. Remember Jesus said, I am the bread of life. So this word purpose has this meaning of purpose, but it also has the meaning of showbread. And so the idea behind it is setting it forth, putting it forth in plain view. So when he says here that with purpose of heart, he's saying that in our hearts, we should make it plain what we're living for. With purpose of heart, that they should continue with the Lord. It should be evident to all of us here as brothers and sisters in Christ, but it should also be evident to the world. That there's something different about us that with purpose of heart, we're setting forth the idea of what we are living for and how we are living. I want to share some of the other places where this word purpose is used in the New Testament. In Romans 8.28, listen to this. This is a verse you probably all know and have memorized. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. What is his purpose? This is suggesting to us that his purpose is known, that his purpose is set forth. And doesn't his word set his purpose forth? Doesn't God love people? Doesn't he want to save people? Doesn't he want to draw them to Christ? Isn't it true that God's heart is that none should perish and that all should come to the knowledge of the truth? That they should repent? Isn't it true that when God does something in our lives, Allah, a water disaster, that he has a plan and a purpose for things that go beyond our ability and our scope of understanding in that moment? Ephesians 3.11, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, the setting forth of his purpose and his plan. 2 Timothy, Peter, excuse me, Paul writing to Timothy, saying, but they will progress no further for their folly will be manifest to all as theirs also was. But you, speaking to Timothy, you have carefully followed my doctrine my manner of faith, my purpose, my faith, long-suffering, love, and perseverance. Paul saying there to Timothy, the purpose for which I have lived my life. You have seen, you have known Timothy, and you have been following that purpose as an example. So with purpose of heart, encouraging the, the believers there to follow the Lord, stay strong to the Lord, to the Lord stay true to the Lord, to continue with the Lord. The word continue is also an interesting word. It's a word prosmeno. Pros means toward or to lean toward or to go toward. But the word meno ought to ring a bell. When we've studied John 15, what is John 15 about? Abiding in Christ, remaining in Christ. That word abide or remain is meno. Prosmeno to continue with the Lord, or to lean toward the Lord, to cleave or cling unto the Lord. Another way of saying it, if we were putting it in John's language, is to abide in the vine. So this idea that there's a lot wrapped up in this, this exhortation that Barnabas gave about with purpose of heart to continue in the Lord. 
that's telling us that we ought to take a moment and let the, the winds of refreshing come in and blow out all the dust and the chaff and we ne- maybe need to hit the reset button on our lives and say, what is my purpose? What is my plan? For what reason am I alive? Why did God put me on this earth? You, you know how it is. We've all thought this question, what is the meaning of life? But not just in that grand philosophical sense out there, but what is the purpose of my life? What is the purpose for which God has brought me into this world? And with whatever time I have left, what should I do with that? And I would say to you, dear brothers and sisters, this morning that according to this, it's to live with purpose to continue in the Lord. We have to do stuff, right? We have to work. We have to make ends meet. We have all those things. But too often, isn't it true, those things define us? We find ourselves living for Friday. We can't wait to get over hump day on Wednesday, get to TGIF, thank God it's Friday, and get into the weekend and collapse and then realize, oh, we have all this work to do. I have to cut the grass, I have to rake the yard, I have to do all these things. And our life is constantly defined by tasks. Our life is defined by God. Who saved me? God. Who brought me into this world? God. Who knit me in my mother's womb? God. Who put my name in the book of life before the foundations of the earth? It was God. Right? With purpose of heart to continue in the Lord. Verse 24, we're told about Barnabas. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith and a great many people were added to the Lord. So as Barnabas came there, God had already been working through these believers who were going around sharing their faith because they were being scattered due to persecution. Barnabas shows up, brings his gift to the table, begins to encourage and exhort, and he sees this work that God is doing. And it says in verse 25, then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. Now we believe that this was because he saw what was going on there. And he says, I know the man who would be the perfect fit for this. It would be Saul of Tarsus. At this point, going back in time as we think just a little bit about Saul, what happened in his life. When he got saved there on the road to Damascus, we know that Uh, Shortly after that, he went away for three years to the Arabian desert and there somehow the Lord ministered to him and spoke to him and taught him. And then he came back for a short period of time and they were out to kill him again. So they sent him back away. They sent him to Tarsus. So at this point, he's been in Tarsus for somewhere between eight and 10 years. So now we're like, I don't know, 13 years down the road from when, when Saul got saved. And Barnabas is going to reach out to Saul. Remember, Barnabas was the guy way back who came across Saul. He stumbled across him and he got to know him and he brought him to Jerusalem and he introduced him to the apostles. And he said, look, this guy's legit. He's for real. God has truly spoken to him. He's ministered to him. This guy is saved. He's the real deal. And they believed and they received and they accepted Saul into their fellowship. And they began to realize that this man who was the violent persecutor of the church was now a man who was tamed by the grace of God. But yet God had a purpose and a plan in Saul's life. And certainly Saul was eminently qualified. He could have moved right into ministry because he began to get it right away. He began to understand that all of those things he knew about the Old Testament law 
that it was all pointing to Jesus. But God, for some reason, put him on the shelf for, for 10 to 13 years and was pouring himself into Saul. And so Barnabas, as he goes to get Saul, he's realizing something about what God is doing in the work there that we need more workers. We need someone who can come in and bring stability and who can teach and who can train. Someone said it this way about the work that God was doing there and part of the reason why Saul of Tarsus would have been necessary. It goes something like this. A ministry can't turn people to the Lord unless the hand of the Lord is with them. You can turn people to a personality without the hand of the Lord. You can turn people to a social club without the hand of the Lord. You can turn people to a church or to an institution without the hand of the Lord. But you cannot turn anyone to the Lord without the hand of the Lord. And I believe Barnabas recognized that he needed Saul. And perhaps, since the, the book of Acts is really not so much about the acts of the apostles, but in my mind it's about the acts of the Holy Spirit, I believe the Spirit prompted Barnabas to go. So in verse 26, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. Now when it says there in verse 25 that he went to seek Saul, that word seek meant to seek diligently, like a detective. I'm going to find him. I'm going to track this guy down. He hunted him down, and he found him, and he brought him to Antioch. And so it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. To take this a little bit in reverse, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. That term Christian wasn't initially a term of endearment. In Antioch, one of the many things they were known for was just making fun of people and belittling people. So they always gave people a name or they gave a situation a name, like a nickname. You know, like if you have a certain physical attribute, they would just call you by that attribute. And even if it was hurtful, it didn't matter. So... We believe that they, they couldn't really think of anything to call the Christians. So this word Christians means little Christs or belonging to Christ. If we were to transfer it into sort of today's language, it might be something like people saying, you're Jesus people, or maybe even you're Jesus freaks. But think about it, this term Christian it has all sorts of meanings all over the world. If we had had time, I, I came across an article this week. It said uh, 13 celebrities who are religious and 13 celebrities who are atheists. And it went through and, you know, did a celebrity who, you know, professes some kind of faith and then a, a celebrity who, you know, professes to be an atheist. So I read it. And I, the reason I was going to share it with you, but, you know, we didn't have time was the celebrities that were dubbed religious, there was a couple who, like one goes to Hillsong Church or whatever, but none of them talked about Jesus. None of them talked about, they talk about God in that, that esoteric, generic sense. But as you read down these people who profess some form of religion, and, and they threw everything in religion, Zoroasterism, you know, Buddhism, Hinduism, they just throw it all in one category called religion. 
So a lot of what they called religious was not even, you know, Christianity. There might have been one in there somewhere who, you know, really knows Jesus. And then, of course, the atheists. But it's interesting how people call themselves Christian, but it may not mean anything close to what the Bible means when it calls someone a Christian. So to be called a Christian is to mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So if you, if you take the label Christian, if you say to someone and, you know, you're talking to them and they say, well, you know, what are you? And you say, well, I'm a Christian. They may not know what that means, but at least in the eyes of God, the word means a follower of Jesus Christ, a little Jesus. That we're supposed to look like him. And doesn't the Bible say that we are supposed to be conformed to the image of Christ? So I say that to say this this morning, that if you go by the, and we put it in the world's terms, just so we don't want to offend anybody, if you identify as a Christian, that's what it means. You're a little Jesus. You're a picture of Jesus to the people around you. So think about that the next time you say, I'm a Christian. Eusebus, the famous early church historian, described a a believer, Sanctus, from Lyon, France, who was tortured for Jesus. And as they tortured him cruelly, they hoped to get him to say something evil or blasphemous. And they asked his name, and he only replied, I am a Christian. What nation do you belong to? He answered, I am a Christian. What city do you live in? I am a Christian. His questioners began to get angry. Are you a slave or a free man? I am a Christian, was his only reply. No matter what they asked about him, he only answered, I am a Christian. And this made his torturers all the more determined to break him, but they could not. And he died with the words, I am a Christian, on his lips. See, for him it meant something. So, Barnabas went and he found Saul and he brought him to Antioch and for a whole year they taught. They brought stability to the church. Now you may remember over in Ephesians chapter 4, and I'll read this to you, verse 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, and it goes on. And part of it, it says in verse 14 of Ephesians 4, that we should be no longer children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine and by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. You see, God had these ministries within the church and has these ministries within the church, to bring stability, to feed the flock, to build the flock up. Why? To equip us all for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And that's what Barnabas realized was missing. He knew his gift wasn't necessarily that gift of teaching, of pastor-teacher, of bringing stability to the church. And so he went and he got Saul, and for a whole year they did this, and it says they taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians. So apparently that work, that ministry that Saul and Barnabas, this dynamic duo had in the church was to bring stability 
and encouragement and exhortation and teaching and building up of the faith to this church. And this church became, we're going to find out in just a couple of chapters, the missionary church of the first century. It became the church from which the base of operations became to send people out throughout all the regions. In fact, as Paul goes out on his journeys, he always comes back to Antioch because that was his home church. And it says finally, and in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. And it says there, then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. You know, it's always interesting when we deal with prophets and prophecy, because certainly today, it's just as confusing as it was in the time of the first century church. There are many who would take the point and argue that the gift of prophecy is no longer active for today. I don't agree with that. I certainly agree it was necessary in a very strong way in the first century church as the New Testament had not been written and it was just coming together. And certainly the the gift and the operation of prophets and prophecy may have changed or morphed uh, over time, but the biblical definitions uh, are true and they remain unchanged. When we look at the word prophets or prophecy, It's a word from the Lord through a member of his body, inspired by his spirit and given to build up the rest of the body. And we know that from 1 Corinthians 14, it says clearly that whenever a gift of prophecy is exercised, it's for encouragement and edification and exhortation. Now, prophet or prophecy can be both to foretell something before it happens, as in the case here of what Agabus did, but also it can mean to foretell. It can be a strong proclamation of the scriptures. And especially when we are teaching and preaching the scriptures that contain things that uh, may be something from time past, but the spirit wants to bring it to bear here and now on this day and in this time, or maybe in our lives in this situation. God can use the gift of prophecy by taking the scriptures and declaring them in such a way that whether it's foretelling or forthtelling, that comes to us in both the form of an encouragement and an exhortation. I went back to look at some of the notes from when we did our series a couple of years ago uh, on the Holy Spirit, the work in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and it was just encouraging to me to realize that God does this even today. There's this group, and we don't have time to develop it, but they're called NAR, the New Apostolic Reformation. They are a part of a group called the Kansas City Prophets. Uh, There's a center there where they send out prophets to make proclamations, and often they are quite strange and probably bogus. Uh, Bethel Church in Redding, California, I'm going to call them out. They subscribe to this new apostolic reformation. And what all that means is that they believe, and and if you go read their literature and you read about any of this, and I'm, I'm summarizing, bringing it down to a gnat's eyelash here, that God has now revived the Old Testament gift of prophet. This is their view. And that means that when they speak, when these people who are these self-proclaimed prophets speak, that the words they speak are scripture. 
that they are per- the words they speak, whatever it is, it's on the same level and authority as Scripture. Now, I don't know anybody writing this stuff down, but that's what they say. And I just say that to say this. There's things like that out there that muck it up. They mess it up. I mean, it's hard to know when you listen to those things and people say something and it's, listen, 99% truth and 1% lie is 100% a lie, isn't it? But it sounds like the truth. Well, this man, Agabus, stood up and he showed by the Spirit, and we don't know what that means, that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world. And and Dr. Luke uh, writes it in here for us, and he says, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Now, this man, Agabus, will show up to us a little bit later. God continues to use him. He has this ministry in the church, and God will bring him back later. But it says here, then the disciples, each according to his ability, these, they received this prophecy. There was something about it that marked of the Lord. It was the Spirit of God speaking. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. They were so moved by this word of what was going to happen that before it happened, they began to take up a collection to send relief to be there for when it happened. Now that's faith, isn't it? That they believed these things. Now, again, we don't have time to go into this morning, but I commend for your reading 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 because those, are, those two chapters are probably the best, most definitive place where giving in the New Testament is talked about. What is the New Testament principle of giving? Is it 10% out of the book of Malachi or is it something else? And, and I believe you know, 10% is great. That's a good place to start. But as you read in 2 Corinthians, here's what you find, and here's a couple of places to both encourage you as well as educate you. 2 Corinthians 8. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering of the saints. This is Paul saying that the church was sending a monetary gift to him to encourage him and help him in his ministry. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. And Paul lays down this principle that when we give, we should not give out of guilt. We shouldn't give out of obligation. We give because we've first given ourselves to the Lord. We are Christians. And out of that, we give. In 2 Corinthians 9, he says, But I say this, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, and not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. In other words, God does bring blessing into our lives because we give. And there is no one on the face of planet Earth who has the right to say that if you give $100, God's going to bless you and give you 200 That's just not in there. And if you hear that, turn and head for the hills. That's just baloney. But it does say that God does honor our giving. He honors our faith. He honors our fruitfulness. He loves that. And so coming back to our passage here, as these disciples, each according to his ability, it would seem that it was proportional, meaning if somebody made, you know, 
a minimum wage and they gave based on what they had. And if someone made a better wage, they gave based on that. In other words, give according to your ability. But these disciples, they responded to God's word and they gave and they wanted to help the Jerusalem church. And they knew, according to the prophecy, that God was going to bring this, this famine. And so they gave and they were faithful. Verse 30, this they also did and sent it by the, to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So they took up this collection, they put feet to their faith, they gave it to Barnabas and Saul, they said, you guys take it to the church. And this now begins a process, and we're going to see this now throughout the New Testament, that often uh, a church or someone will be in need, a sickness, whatever it may be, and we'll see churches, this one over here, giving to that one over there, and that one over there being blessed, and giving to this one over here. And it just lays out for us this pattern. That God's people are loving, we're compassionate, we're kind, and when we see someone in need, we help them. And this is the moving, this is the working of the Spirit. The title, title of today's message was Encouragement and Exhortation. And that's what happens, that's what begins to happen here with the Church of Antioch, and they become an example to us. We're now going to stop and turn our hearts toward the Lord's table, so let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We thank you for how you've been ministering to us. And we thank you, Lord, for your word. You are so faithful, Lord. And we pray that the things that you've spoken to us, that we would take and apply to our lives, and that we would walk in these things. And whatever it is that you may have spoken to us as a church or to us as individuals, God, that we have heard and received. Lord, most of all, as we walk away from here today, may we be encouraged by that purpose of heart to continue in the Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.